Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Nice to be here with all of you again tonight. It's been a while. <laughs> had a lot of things going on, so I actually missed the session. Had to trade with somebody, but, uh, but here we are back. We're going to be talking about Genesis again. So we've been going through the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning, creation in particular, the first six days. Uh, and uh, we're going to be uh, covering day five, which is going to be quite interesting. We're going to get into some really interesting talk- topics today. Um, you know, each lesson we focused on, you know, the individual day, uh, you know, for the most part, and the discussions have been very science focused, uh, corresponding with biblical scripture. And I think that this lesson will be, you know, no different tonight. Um, we're going to be in Genesis 1, 20 through 23. So we're going to cover four verses, uh, which is going to take us through, uh, uh, through uh, basically the uh, the creation of of uh, uh, marine animals and birds, so the the first part of living creatures. So, so as we get started here, let's kind of just recap real quick uh, for those that may have not caught all of these. But in day one, uh, God commanded uh, the creation of light and the separation from darkness. So we saw that happen when we talked about that back on day one. And in day two, we covered uh, the creation of the atmosphere and the sky, uh, the hydrosphere, which are the oceans, and and the separation of those. Uh, Day three, we got into the separation of the land from the sea and then all the plant life basically on that land. Um, And then in day four, we covered the creation of the sun and the moon and the planet and the stars and the galaxies, basically the universe uh, that, that is all around us. So as we begin uh, tonight, um, we're going to see that all the necessities for living creatures are going to be present now on the earth, right? So we basically have light, we have air, soil, we have the chemical uh, reactions happening, we have plants, the fruits are there, all this is in place now, but we're, we're missing an element here, and the earth is still very still, it's void basically, there's no inhabitants on here. And so God is going to form, you know, the inhabitants in, in this in the beginning of this. And uh, so the first scripture that I have, which I think is really amazing, is, is Isaiah forty five eighteen. And so for this it says uh, God says, For for thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it? Who has established it? Who did not create it in vain? Who formed it to be inhabited? I am the Lord, and there is no other. So I really like that Scripture. So this means that the fifth and sixth day, which we'll get, will be next time, uh, uh, we're going to be devoted to really God's final work of creation. Uh, it's the formation of all living creatures. So, you know, today we're going to cover five, 
and we're like I said, we're going to get into water and, and uh, air animals. So let's go ahead and dive in. So Genesis 1, 20-23 says, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament in the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So honestly, I have to say that this passage really shuts down any kind of discussion when it comes to evolution. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. Um, the language is absolute in, in those verses, right? After their kind. After its kind. In other words, there could be changes within the species, but there cannot be changes from one to another species, right? Things don't change. Uh, John Corson uh, wrote uh, something that I thought was really good. Scientists have been able to breed uh, fruit flies into millions of generations. And guess what? They're still fruit flies. Not one of them has become a honeybee. So I thought that was really good. But isn't evolution a fact? Right? Today, we hear. You know, according to the Geological Society of London, they are sure, they are sure, <laughs> uh, that our planet is approximately 4,560 million years old. That's a pretty specific date, right? Basically 4.5 billion years. They believe that life changed over millions and millions of years and has been developed in, you know, into what it is today. Uh, this has happened because living things went through different changes in their genes and only the ones that were better adapted uh, to their environment survived and passed on their traits to their offspring. Basically, survival of the fittest, right? This, is, this was stated from Charles, or I like to say Chuck Darwin. Um, you know, furthermore, according to the Australian Academy of Science, uh, they agree uh, with the idea of evolution, is responsible for the complex life that we see on earth today. They say there's a lot of factual knowledge that supports this theory. In fact, um, the science academies, which are uh, around the world, which are actually, like there's one called the uh, Inner Academy Panel, which is a bunch of academies of science people that have come together, uh, have set out, a, 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 made a statement for teaching, right? 67 academies signed on to this, and it had a basic three sort of basic points to it. And we're going to talk about this, but uh, they believe that the evidence shows that life appeared on Earth 2.5 billion years ago. Since then, life has been changing and evolving, and we can see this through studying fossils as well as modern biology and biochemistry. This is what they believe. Uh, and they also say that all living things share common origin because our genetic code is similar in structure, which, again, we're going to study. It's very different than what God tells us, right? What we just read. But unfortunately for these people, 
who believe in evolution, I think there's an overwhelming amount of data-based evidence today uh, that's contrary to those beliefs, that, 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 that wipes them out. In searching for tonight, I came across some reading of an author. I read you know, several books and, and uh, you know, preparing, and, and this one author, something really stood out to me, and, and I thought it was important, and I wanted to, to read it to you guys. Um, it basically, it, 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 I, it's, uh, it's an article, and in this conversation, I feel like it really kind of dealt a death blow to, to what all these academies are saying that they believe in. So I'll give you a quick background. First off, it's, it's a project um, that they were doing uh, to study d- disease-resistant resi- traits in a cereal grain. Okay, so they're always analyzing all these things, right? And uh, they, they're trying to manipulate the DNA of the grain. And the techniques that they use for that is they apply special chemicals to it to damage the DNA of the seed. And then they plant that seed and they grow it up and they harvest the new seeds and then they grow that or germinate it. And then they, they look at the mutation and see if they achieve what they wanted to. However, what I thought was more interesting is he's, he's involved in this project. He's a Christian author, but um, he's involved in this project. So... Um, I'll paraphrase uh, kind of what he said and sort of intermix it together, but I want to catch it for what it was. It says, and this is what he wrote. He says, Over lunch, I was thinking about the role of mutations in relation to the theory of evolution. He says, For a new species to evolve from a common ancestor, new genetic information must arise, presumably from some sort of favorable mutation. Okay? So while he was sitting at the lunch table with, with uh, the people... Um, he asked the research scientist that was in charge of this project a question. He says, I have a question for you. He says, do mutations ever give rise to new purposeful genetic information? And that research scientist answered immediately. And he said, of course, yes. So the author then asked and said, well, can you cite or give me an example? And the research scientist uh, for a moment, thought for a while, and and replied and says, well, I can't think of a specific example right now, but if you ask our geneticist, he'll be able to answer it. So later that afternoon, the author says that he caught up with that senior genetics researcher at the university, and he said, and he asked him the exact same question. And in that question, the reply came back just as quick, except it was completely opposite. He said, never, never. He said, the author was surprised, and he pressed him further, and and so the the senior genetics researcher explained, he said, that mutations always lead to damaged DNA, which usually results in the loss of genetic information. He knew of no instances where new purposeful genetic information arose either by natural process or through the mutation induced through uh, chemically or through radiation. So this story really got me to thinking. I concluded that the geneticist is correct in all that I was studying. He says, it's what he said, right? Mutations always lead to damaged DNA, and they result in a loss of genetic information. We have to have new information, not loss of information for this to happen, right? So because these mutations never uh, produce any of this purposeful genetic information, you know, evolution... As, as they call it out in their own uh, points, right, it is impossible. It can't happen because the, the, it won't work, right? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. 
So I thought that was an interesting story to start out with, but as we take a, take, you know, take a look at these accounts and we discuss this in God's Word and we kind of go through the verses and break them down, I think you'll find a much clearer picture uh, that backs up what we're talking about over the last you know, sessions and the first six days of creation. I'm hoping that by the end of this discussion, we'll all walk out of here uh, with an evidence-based reason for rejecting evolution. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and kind of dive in a little bit further. So we're going to go back to the verses. So in Genesis 1.20, the first half, we talk about, it said, Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. The first introduction of animal life was not a fragile blob of protoplasm that happened to come together in response to some kind of electrical charge, which is what they claim, uh, you know, in the ocean. Remember, you know, revolution, uh, evolutionists believe that the first living uh, things supposedly evolved from the oceans before plants. But God's Word tells us that plants were created before anything arrived in the seas, right? That happened in day, in, in day three, right, where the plants were, were, were created. Once again, I feel that, you know, again, the evolutionary story is wrong. God created life that lives in the seas. This sea life that God created would include a vast array of aquatic creatures, right? So fish, coral, like the picture up above, sea mammals like dolphins and porpoises, sea reptiles, turtles, uh, you know, crocodiles that live in the sea, like down in, in Australia. Um, now, you may ask, what about the dinosaurs? And uh, actually, creatures like these are really not called dinosaurs. They're actually called marine reptiles, but uh, they lived in the water. Um, they're considered marine reptiles, but for whatever reason, they are extinct now. We don't have any, we don't see them anymore today. Uh, but they were created at that time. They, they did exist. Uh, and there's a lot of accounts for that, and we're going to talk about that. But another problem for the evolutionists, though, is that they believe that after the land, an land animals evolved, okay, because they believe that they came from the fish, fish became, came out of the water and became land mammals, right? Uh, then something like, and I make fun of it, but a dog, you know, went back to the ocean and then evolved back into an aquatic mammal, which is how we got a whale, right? This is how they have to explain marine animals, uh, mammals, because you know they 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 they're not there in the in the beginning, right? So they have to explain a way back for them, you know. But the Bible makes it clear that marine mammals were created in day five before the land animals. We're going to talk about land animals. That's going to be in day six. That's when they're created. Um, but certainly, uh, we can we can you know. You can't really add the evolutionary story to the Bible. It, it just doesn't fit. Uh, and, and so I think we're kind of seeing that. But in the second half of Genesis, we see that uh, God says, you know, excuse me, and let the birds fly uh, above the earth and across the face of the firmament of heaven. Along with the animals of the water, um, also appeared the animals of the air. You know, birds to fly literally in the face of the firmament of heaven. 
And I don't know if you remember, but we, we, you know, we studied the firmaments. We just, in day two, we studied that there were three of them. Uh, there's our atmosphere, which is the, the space between our land and oceans and, and, the, and space itself, or the sky, right, up. And then there's the space out where all of the stars and the moons are. And then there's heaven itself. Those are the three firmament, firm, firmaments. Tough word. Uh, but of course, um, this verse is talking about the first firmament which is the space between uh, the land and the water. But as we continue, you know, it's also important to note that life was not simply brought forth from the earth or the water. Animal life required consciousness. And consciousness could not be created or arranged out of the building blocks that God had already created. It required a new creation. God had created the physical elements of the universe in the first four days, but now He's about to perform His second act of true creation. Here is, you know, in the first uh, half of of verse 21, we see that act. So God created, you know, the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. The word life or living occurs for the first time in this verse. The living creature uh, is the same as a living soul. Uh, So in this act of creation can be understood as the creation of the entity of conscious life. Life that we all know. It's something that would be an integral part of every animated being, including us, uh, human beings, man. Um, The Hebrew word for this is nefesh, and it means soul. So, it is frequently used in reference to both the soul of man, but also in the life of animals. Um, in, a, in the biblical sense, plants you know, really do not have this, right? So plants are plants, right? They, they don't have a soul, they don't have a consciousness, but both animals and humans do. And what does, does God tell us to do with our life, our consciousness, our soul? I think it says it best in Deuteronomy 6.5 where He says, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Amen? So, also within that first half of the verse, we look at that creation of the sea creature. And this was an interesting one for me. So as I researched this and looked at this, uh, you know, it also meant sea monster. And I found some references in, in various different Bible dictionaries. And uh, the definition that followed was a monster of the deep or of the deep sea or a serpent. The serpent one is kind of was interesting to me and I kind of pulled on that thread a little bit. Um, as I studied, I also found that two-thirds of the occurrences in the dictionary and, and other uh, sources seem to reflect some sort of great sea monster that existed. Um, it's also uh, further stated, you know, to look up the word whale. So I did, I did you know, obviously uh, research whales and, and look at that as it comes out. And I can say that for sure, as we know today and what exists in the sea, it is probably the greatest, biggest mammal or animal, if you will, uh, the, the, the uh, creature that lives in the sea today are our whales, right? And it was the first one specifically mentioned, the first 
creation was of great whales or great sea creatures. Um, but as we, I pulled on the thread, you know, I looked in the Hebrew, at the Hebrew word of this, and it's tanin. And it is a common noun. It's used uh, for any sort of snake-like creatures. So that was kind of interesting to me. Uh, you know, the, the snake-like creature aspect of it. I don't have a lot of those, you know, other than eels and things like that in the, in the ocean today. But if you think back in time, uh, it's probably very true. It, um, it also uh, frequently translates to the, to the word dragon, which is, is also used. Um, so if we uh, take a look at that, now we know that, you know, some of these sea creatures are now extinct, but... You know, there were quite a few of them. Uh, you know, the Bible and the ancient records from different cultures, you know, talk a lot about big sea creatures. Um, we also can uh, just can't just ignore the stories, right? And as they're fairy tales, because uh, they clearly, you know, existed. They most likely were uh, memories or, or stories that were passed down, you know, uh, through tribal ancestors, you know, as they encountered with these these creatures that existed that. Again, they aren't, aren't here anymore. But we do have a lot of data, data-driven data or data-based evidence that say they existed. We have their fossils, right? We've, we've seen them, so we know that they were, they were real and they existed on the earth. But we do need to understand the fossil record a little bit and how it equates to time. Because I think that ties back to being a young earth. We've talked about the young earth and we talked about how uh, you know, I believe it's it's much younger. You know, seven, ten, you know, somewhere in that range, thousand years, not billions of years old. Right? It's a very young Earth. So, if we dive into the fossil record and talk a little bit about where it, where it came from, you know, this is really the main reason that scientists believe uh, in evolution. Uh, you know, they use the fossil record as their explanation to why it's like well it's billions of years old so it has to be you know these dinosaurs had to live you know a long time ago and so that's really what they what they drive it's also the prevailing position that's presented in all textbooks today i mean any any textbooks in middle school high school you know college as you go through that's this is the story they're going to tell right they're not going to tell the story of creation unless maybe you're at a christian school um but what are fossils, right? So fossils are really the remains or imprints, molds, if you will, of dead plants and animals. They're found, uh, they're found preserved in some way, usually in rocks like tar, amber, uh, you know, in shale, different, different kinds of rock. You know, they also can be found in like freezing conditions. So in the Arctic, you know, where things have been frozen that they've uncovered and we've been able to analyze. Um, but because animals and plants decay, it, it, the only way that this can occur is something very quick has to happen. They have to be covered uh, pretty quickly. You know, it has to be an event. Something occurred, right, uh, for this, for, to, to get it to a state where it can be fossilized. So when this, this burial happens, rapid burial um, occurs, uh, it basically leaves that imprint of that organism. And as the rock hardens, the, the organic part of it decomposes and then it fills with sediment and really the fossil is nothing more than a rock, right? That's just to the form of what was imprinted inside there. Um, now, I, I feel this rapid event uh, really lines up well with the flood 
and you know Noah's time, right? So, I mean, something happened, and we know that there are areas where there are huge amounts of dinosaurs that were clearly trying to climb up or go up a, a region, a, a valley, trying to get away from the water, and eventually were overtaken by that water uh, and, and, and died a very quick death and were covered with the sediment, and that's why there's so many dinosaurs in these particular areas. We see that a lot. Fortunately, though, uh, most of these theories, I feel, uh, if you use real data, have been debunked. And we'll talk about some of these examples. Uh, we'll like one in particular. Um, in the early 1800s, there was a geolo geologist. Uh, his name was Charles Liel, okay? And he studied fossils, and he came up with a way to organize the layers of the rock based on the kind of fossils that were found within the various layers. He sort of came to the conclusion that on the lower layers, the, the fossils were not as complex as the ones maybe up on the upper layers, and, and so he began to uh, create a, a, a categories for the various different layers. And um, he gave names to those that are still used today. Uh, you may have heard these names when you were in school. I, I actually remember them. Uh, there's uh, the Eocene, the Miocene, and the, the Pliocene, right? These, these are the layers that they gave. And these are still widely accepted today. And we have more, they, they have more that they've done in trying to prove this, or, which they ultimately keep disproving, but ultimately there are, there's more that they've done. But this is still really kind of the foundation of where that time effort came. And it really kind of happened uh, back in some time, and it's funny because it happened not too far from us. I don't know if anybody's been to Niagara Falls, but... Um, in Niagara Falls, this, this uh, scientist, he went there, the geologist, uh, to Niagara Falls, and he was going to do a calculation. So it was, I think it was in 1841 that he was there, and he talked to the inhabitants that lived in the area at the time, and he asked them about, how is this decaying? Like, how, how fast is the fall moving backwards as it's eroding away? Because it's always eroding away. And the local inhabitants told him that it was about... Uh, three feet per year. That was the calculation that was given to him. But he kind of assumed on his own that they were exaggerating that claim, and he changed the rate, and he decided that it was going to be a foot. So he actually made it 12 inches as opposed to 36 inches that it was eroding away. And so since that Niagara Falls Gorge was at that time was about 35,000 feet long, or you know, going back into it, he concluded that that had taken 35,000 years to create. And so they took this figure, and it was widely accepted, and it's still accepted today in a lot of books that you read as the proof in their minds that the world was really old. Okay, so this is where this calculation comes from. But it's important to note that that one foot was his assumption, right? He decided that it was going to be that measurement. But... Unfortunately, it didn't work out so well because now, since then, we've been able to study that and do scientific measurement because he did no scientific measurement. It was just an assumption. And we've been able to conclude that it's actually eroding at four to five feet per year. So it's actually even more than the local inhabitants you know, were saying back then. Now, what does that do? Well, instead of being 35,000 years, if you apply that, you end up with about 7,000 years if you apply that erosion rate to it, which is more in line with, again, uh, the flood. It's more in line you know, with the biblical dating of the flood. 
And there are really numerous uh, examples of, this, of these types of miscalculations that I've studied in the last you know, few weeks as I prepared. Um, we won't go over all of them because we'd probably be here all night, but uh, we can definitely talk about them at some point and, and I'll share them with you if anybody is interested later. But <clears throat> you can really kind of see though how the fossil dating just in that one aspect is, is wrong, how it's thrown it off. So you know, we, it's already sort of upside down. But let's go a little bit further uh, into verse 21, uh, with which, uh, uh, let's see, let's see, verse 21, here we go. With which the waters abounded, this is the second half of that verse, and this is, gets really interesting. So, with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So, each was reproduced of its own kind, right? This goes back to the genetics aspect, to the, 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 the story of the author that I read at the beginning, its own kind. God right there tells us in that one phrase, its own kind. Just like plants, the way animals reproduce are designed to make sure that each kind of animal stays the same. Modern genetics has shown you know, that all replicating system functions happen in the DNA molecule but it stays the same. You can have a dog, and it may have variations of dogs, and they might look different and whatever, but it's still a dog no matter what. And dog with dog can breed and have more dogs, and you can have variations of that, but that isn't evolution. They're still dogs. Their DNA is still dogs. Same thing with cats, right? You have all kinds of different cats, but they're still cats. You never have a cat become a dog or a dog become a cat. It's never happened, never been, never been found, never been tested. And so all this is coded, and we talked about this, I think, I forget what day, but um, one of the days that we were in, the coding, the complex coding. And being a programmer myself, I understand coding, not at this level, it's far beyond my understanding, but just to look at it and marvel at it, it's very complicated how we are put together, how the instructions are in our cells you know, down to the minute detail about how we will exist, what we'll look like, uh, you know, everything. It's all in there, in that DNA. And, you know, it's programmed, like we said, you know, and these variations won't change outside of that. But many evolutionists believe that uh, 15 billion years, you know, that's how, that's how old they think that the cosmos is or the universe um, they believe that that's an abundance of time. And with that much time, we can have these interactions with these atoms and molecules, and it will generate life. Okay, that this, is, this is where evolution comes from. It's where the Big Bang comes from. It's where all this sort of you know, stems from these beliefs that we have a lot of time, and so these things can happen. But with some simple arithmetic lesson here, which we're going to go through, uh, I won't make you do the math, um, we're going to see that it's really kind of an irrational fantasy. It can happen. The, the, the math, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And, and, and so I really looked at this closely. So we're going to kind of go through a, a very simple arithmetic lesson here, and we're going to look at uh, calculating the odds, and we're going to kind of relate it to the lottery, all right? Because everybody here can understand the lottery. Um, and I tried to make this as, 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 uh, as interesting and simple as possible because it got... I got a little lost in it because it got uh, it got pretty crazy. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let you know that I did the math 
I did verify these calculations. I did actually crunch through them and, and try them on my calculator and make sure that they were right. Uh, so I feel like they're, this is good, good data here. But bear with me as we go through some of these numbers. So I'm going to put up a slide. I'm going to reference that slide. And we're only going to focus on the top column. Okay? You don't need to read it. It's, it's, it's okay. But just remember that there are multiple structures. There's a primary structure, secondary structures, uh, you know, tri uh, tri I can't say it, you know, third and fourth level structures, okay? We're focusing on the protein, and that's really the primary piece. So if you think of that, and you think about uh, the possible lottery combinations, they would correspond to those protein structures, each of those sort of round areas across the top. And imagine, you know, those are, that's what we're focused on here, the protein side, which is really the the building block of all life, right, are these proteins. And the winning ticket corresponds to a tiny set of, uh, of these proteins, right, with the correct special properties from which every living organism, let's say a simple bacterium, okay, just a simple bacterium, can successfully be built. They have to come, you know, they're all, we're all sort of come together the same way. And then the maximum number of lottery tickets a person can buy will correspond with the maximum number of protein molecules that could have ever existed in the history of the cosmos. Now, this is going to be a really big number, okay? <laughs> but bear with me, right? We're talking about the history of the whole universe. So um, to figure this out, the maximum number of molecules, we have to, this is where we have to do the little bit of math, right? So we're going to kind of dive into it. And I'm just going to give you the answers here. So let's say there are about 10 to the 80 atoms. All right. So what is that? That's a one with 80 zeros behind it. Right. So it's a very big number in all of the universe. 10 to the 80 atoms. Okay. Now, each of those atoms can have about 10 to the 12 interactions per second. So that's, again, uh, one with 12 zeros that many interactions are occurring per second with each atom, okay? So we're giving them a lot, right? That's, that's a huge calculation, a huge number. Now, if we assume that the Earth is 30 billion years old, and that's doubling what they say today, 15 billion, so we're giving them, again, we're, we're helping out here, okay? So we're saying 30 billion, we're going to give you double that. Then that would be 10, uh, and, we, and we create that into seconds, okay? That's going to be 10 to the 18th in seconds, right? So again, a one with 18 zeros, that many seconds is, is what that adds up to be, okay? Now, um, with that, we can then estimate that the total maximum uh, uh, interactions between atoms, okay, in the universe is 10 to the 110. So one with 110 zeros, all right? So very, very big number. Now, in simpler terms, you know, what we're trying to do is figure out probabilities, right? What is the probability of this thing happening, right? And we're dealing with numbers that are, that are just huge. Uh, they're kind of hard to get our head around. Um, we don't know anything that big in, in reality, but, you know, in math, we can do these things, right? So it's, it's really big. So now let's imagine that each time an atom interacts, that each of those interactions, it creates a new molecule, okay? That isn't really how it works. Um, it's much less than that, you know, when these kinds of things do occur. But let's just say that there's one per every interaction, which means we have 10 to the 110th, uh, you know, molecules, you know, being created. Now, 
let's think about the challenge of a specific set of, of uh, proteins, 1,000 proteins, okay? Uh, and let's uh, apply that to that simple bacterium. And keep in mind that like E. coli, everybody knows what that is, right? That has about 2,000 to 4,000, okay, proteins in it. But we're, we're cutting it down to a fourth of that. Again, helping out here. And then let's say that we've already found 999. We only need to find one, right? So forget the 999. We've already found those. We're trying to find just one of these sequences in all of this, okay? So where am I going with this? Well, if you do the math and you calculate this out and look at it, what you're going to find out is that it's, in order to find that one combination, it's 10 to the 130th. And we only have 10 to 110 total. So it's basically impossible. It's impossible. Mathematically impossible. And then if you apply that to the other 999 or 2,000 or 4,000 or what, and you get into human beings and the complexity of that, right? It's impossible. It's mathematically impossible. You have a better chance of winning the Powerball like multiple times in a row. Even that, like 100 times in a row. It's just impossible uh, you know, for this to have occurred. Uh, in, in, in evolution. So that really kind of blows that apart. But yet, I rack my brain, they're still pushing you know, evolution on our kids. They're still pushing it on everybody out there. And, and they won't let up. I don't know why, but they just won't. It's evil, to be honest. Uh, and it's not true. But let's go ahead and finish up. I want to, uh, in closing, you know, I want to finish up the last couple of verses here. So in 22 and 23, we're going to go through that. So <clears throat> let's uh, see. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. In this case, God not only declared that His work was good, uh, but He pronounced a blessing on the animals that He had created. The blessing included both a command and a provision for the continued multiplication of animals that He had created so that He would soon occupy the entire world. So, though not an object of God's love as man would be, animals nevertheless are an object of His care and concern. In Matthew 10, uh, 29, Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Are not one of, uh, um, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from my Father's will. Not even a sparrow uh, would ever fall to the ground without God noticing and caring. He continually provides food for them. Matthew 6.26, Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? If God does this for the sparrow and all the animals of His creation, how, more, more, how much more would He do that for you? You know, out of everything that we've studied, all the science and all the numbers, you know, I just want to share you know, the one thing in life that matters more than anything else. And that's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the one and only truth that matters to all of us. It is so important that we all understand that God, our Creator, gave us a path to everlasting life with Him. All we have to do is acknowledge we are sinners, ask for forgiveness, accept Him into our heart, and turn and walk away from the sinful world's ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight, Lord. We thank You uh, for being with us, Lord. We just uh, thank You for these words, Father, for Your truth, uh, just for creating such a beautiful and amazing and just awesome world, Lord. Every day as we just look out and just see Your creation, it's just mind-blowing. And we're so grateful and so thankful, Father, for all that You do, Father. Go before us tonight. And be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.